Poetry represents perhaps the most elegant use of language, the most delicate expression of the wide range of moods and feelings that make us most deeply human. For that reason, poetry can move us to think differently, behave differently, even sometimes believe differently. That's where, uh, that's where the poems do a lot of the work of moving from the general to the particular, how to make faith, um, sort of uh, how to adjust it to the person, how to apply it to the person. And that's why in this poem, for instance, uh, there is already a belief in death having been defeated at the beginning of the poem, but that's not enough. Something, something more needs to be uh, fought for, not, something more needs to be achieved by the end of the poem. We're speaking today with David Marno, Associate Professor of English at the University of California at Berkeley, about his beautiful book, Death Be Not Proud, The Art of Holy Attention. Marno takes as a subject a stirring sonnet of the English poet John Dunn's and shows how Dunn's poem works to focus our attention as it stirs our souls. I'm Matthew Wickman, founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and the host of this podcast. And now our conversation with David Marno. Uh, welcome, uh, David Marno. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I should say we're taping this uh, the day before the presidential election. It's November second, right now, and we'll it'll be released later. Uh, but I figure, you know, presidential election in the air. Let's talk poetry. <laughs> so, David, thank you for joining us. I'm so glad to be here, Matt, and thank you so much for the invitation. And in terms of uh, poetry before the election day. Uh, I am teaching King Lear this week, uh, starting tomorrow <laughs> on election day. So imagine that conversation with That's my perfect. undergraduate students about uh, an old man not wanting to let go of, uh, of power. <laughs> Perfectly timed. Very good. Um, you know, I'm always excited uh, by insights people have into the things literature can do, right? The ways it can help us think and feel differently, how it can help us realize new capacities in ourselves or engage the world in important ways. Um, your beautiful, I'll hold it up here for the camera, your beautiful 2016 book, Death Be Not Proud, uh, does this regarding uh, what you call the art of holy attention. And I'm looking forward to discussing this today. As a preliminary step, let's set up a couple of things. First, this is a 300-page book about a sonnet of 14 lines. <laughs> so um, how did, why a book to something, why something so massive to something so narrow, 14 lines, a sonnet? You're saying it's an overkill, maybe? <laughs> no, it's actually extraordinary what you can do in this book with that sonnet. It's a beautiful book. I'm curious how you even thought to write an entire book about a single sonnet. Well, um, speaking of overkill, this is, a, this is a sonnet that claims to kill death. Hmm. So, um, so there is a, a hyperbole um, that is at least one of the central figures, the, one of the central poetic rhetorical figures in the poem is hyperbole. So uh, what better way of writing a book about it than uh, um, writing a <laughs> hyperbolical book? Uh, but honestly, um, this is a book that uh, uh, I didn't design it to be about a single poem. Uh, what happened was that uh, I read this poem um, and other holy sonnets by John Donne um, that raised a whole set of questions um, for me. And as I uh, concluded the book and started, uh, you know, looking for a publisher and showed it to people, um, the question that uh, I kept um, getting about the book was, uh, is this a single author book? Um, because 
there were so many larger questions that I addressed in the book uh, that, uh, that there was a concern about why one author. And um, eventually I just sort of doubled down and said, well, you have a problem with one author, then let's make it about one poem. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was a hyperbolical gesture because uh, this is a book that does not address that poem on every page. In fact, I think there are chapters where I don't talk about uh, that particular sonnet, but, um, but I do stand by the claim that it is about one poem in the very specific sense that number one, it's a book in which all the questions come out from uh, my encounter with this poem. Um, really, it was an adventure, so to speak. I didn't have these categories that I'm thinking in the book uh, beforehand, uh, Thanksgiving or even attention. I never thought about those as concepts uh, and they all came out from the reading of the poem. So in that sense, it's about death be not proud, but also in the sense that I really remained sort of committed to considering the poem as my ultimate witness to all these ideas in the sense that I kept returning to the poem throughout the entire book. And that's why the framework of the book is I start with Death Be Not Proud and then I return to Death Be Not Proud in the last chapter um, as a kind of uh, um, ultimate test of whether or not the things that, I'm, that, I, that I thought I found um, um, are there in the poem. It's a brilliant experiment. It really is. I, I think it turned out uh, really wonderfully, uh, David. I wonder, uh, what since the poem is so short, it's a sonnet, it's 14 lines, Can we? Um, would you read that poem uh, to us, John Donne's Death Be, Not, Death Be Not Proud from his Holy Sonnets, uh, and then we'll talk about uh, some parts of your book. Is that all right? I would love to do that. Uh, you know, this is a poem that uh, one can, I think, write a book about it. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's a poem that works at so many different levels that, uh, that I think it is uh, very powerful, even at first reading uh, just on an anecdotal level. I'm teaching actually a done seminar right now. And, uh, and I have one student who uh, recently, uh, we were reading actually the Holy Sonnets. Um, and uh, uh, I got an email from one particular student who asked me that we should definitely focus on that being not proud because uh, they are taking the class in order to learn about that being not proud, the sonnet. Okay. So there is a student who is stick. I wrote a book about the sonnet, but there is a student, what is more, there is a student who apparently is taking a class because of one poem wow. and was expecting to get there eventually. So I'll, let me read uh, just these 14 lines. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate man, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and easier than thy stroke. Why swells thou then? One short sleep past, we live eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. 
Thank you. It's a beautiful poem. Um, this poem, right, is based on a biblical passage from 1 Corinthians, right? First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 15, right? Which in the King James, uh, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Uh, and you um, elicit from uh, this poem and its conversation with the concepts uh, that it's engaging, this idea about holy attention. Um, can you, is, is, there, is there a quick and easy, well, I'm going to ask you about some passages in a second in your book. Is there a quick and easy way for you to define what holy attention means? I know you wrote an entire book. It's 300 pages. Is there a, a, a capsule definition that you, that you give to uh, students or other engaged uh, people, readers of your book, about what that is? Um, I'll attempt it. Um, the, one, of the, one of the reasons um, I would possibly want to rewrite this book if, uh, if I could today is that uh, the book really has two books in it. Uh, and maybe I was impatient and I should have written the first first and then the second one about done specifically. Um, and the first book uh, would have been about uh, holy attention as a historical concept. Um, okay. So one claim in this book is that there is a tradition within Christianity, um, but going even beyond Christianity, that um, for which um, an idea, a certain idea of attentiveness is quite central. And the idea here that I can put it fairly succinctly is that if one could um, attend without any distraction, absolutely perfectly, if you will, um, that could uh, unite one uh, with God. Um, it's a very radical theological idea. Um, it goes back to uh, ascetic monastic, monastic traditions. Uh, and it is uh, somewhat controversial uh, within Western Christianity, at mm -hmm. least. Um, um, so one thing that the book does, it traces this idea. Um, it is interested in uh, um, how the idea remained uh, operational, if you will, even in authors who did not necessarily embrace it explicitly theologically. So that's, that's the sort of theological tradition. On the other hand, I was just interested in, uh, in the question of, uh, of attention itself, uh, specifically in this sense, and this comes again out, from the out of the theological tradition, but I think goes way beyond to it, to everyday life, everyday experience. The idea that uh, every time you attend to anything, to anything, um, you do not attend to all the other things, if you will. Um, so this is uh, Saint Augustine talks a lot about this, in especially in the Confessions. Uh, the idea that uh, the difference between God and humans is that God can attend to everything at the same time without producing distraction, whereas uh, whereas we, every time we attend to anything, uh, accumulate distraction, and in a sense. Um, Augustine is interested in the temporal and spatial aspect. That is to say, when I attend to the now or when I attend to the here, then I do not attend to the then or the past, and I do not attend to the elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but in a sense, the same is true of intensity, it seems to me. The more I focus on something, the more I accumulate distraction, the more I'm unable to, to, to pay attention to anything else. Yeah. So the idea of a holy attention is... Um, attending um, in a way that uh, does not accumulate distraction, that does not at the same time uh, distract me from, from everything else. Uh, and that, I, that is an idea that I think is uh, uh, very prevalent in, uh, 
in both uh, thinking and practices of, uh, of devotion. But actually, I think it's a very everyday experience as well uh, from, you know, in such basic activities like playing basketball or, or trying to fall asleep. <laughs> in all those, I, yeah. I at least regularly encounter the problem of, uh, of how the more I focus, the more trouble I get myself into occasionally in terms of uh, becoming rigid almost uh, to, to everything else. Yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a passage in your book that I really love that talks about there's a, there's a theological idea in there, but it also goes into everyday life, exactly what you're describing. This is on page 12. I'll read this here. Um, For Dunn, being attentive in this life was a miracle comparable to the miracle he considered the most important element of the Christian faith, the resurrection. While in the resurrection, God miraculously collects the dissolved parts of the human body in experiences of attention, it is the self whose scattered parts are miraculously reunited. Transient and unsustainable experiences of attention of attentiveness nevertheless have one advantage over the resurrection. They belong to this life, <laughs> right? Um, that's a beautiful passage. Was that something that you that connection between attention and resurrection, and 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 the way that attention goes beyond resurrection in some ways into everyday experience? Was that a piece? Did you, did you get that from uh, your reading, or was that just your own? insight into the nature of the poem about which you were writing. I mean, this is a poem that is explicitly about the resurrection. The passage, the Corinthians passage that you quoted uh, or referred to uh, is a passage, uh, and, you know, so much of the richness of, uh, of Dunn's sonnet comes from the fact that it, uh, that it is an engagement with uh, the passage from the Corinthians. The Corinthians passage is, uh, is Paul's attempt to first answer the question of what uh, the resurrected body will look like um, or be like. Um, but, uh, but he doesn't quite manage to answer that. It, it includes some speculations about the spiritual body. Um, but then Paul goes into this more rhetorical mode of, uh, of announcing a kind of final victory over death. And at the same time, he very much thinks about the epistemological question of what is the role of, uh, of the idea of the resurrection um, in Christian faith in general. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it seems to me that when Don does uh, in this poem uh, is uh, he continues thinking about, uh, about those same questions and especially about the epistemological question. That is to say, what does it mean uh, to think the resurrection as a doctrine, if you will? Um, what is uh, the way in which uh, prayer, meditation, other devotional practices uh, can um, help you develop an attitude towards that idea, if you will. Don was, uh, um, to me, uh, one of the interesting things about Don as an author is that uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's not somebody who believes things um, without a problem or it doesn't come easy to him. Uh, he's a very um, distracted author and very distracted thinker um, who at the same time is absolutely committed to, for instance, the idea of the resurrection. Um, and so negotiating those two things uh, is what happens in, uh, in this poem and in many other texts uh, of Dunn's. It's fascinating. You have a great passage, just one more passage from your book about, about thinking. Uh, I'm thinking about this, about the, about the resurrection, what the implications are then for how we imagine life around us, not just a point at which one is or is not resurrected, but, the, but rather what that implies then for everyday 
existence. This is on page 27. It's still uh, part of your introduction to the book. Uh, you write, in the conception of holy attention, a thought isn't just a mental proposition, but an event occurring to the attentive mind. And thinking isn't merely an attempt to formulate mental propositions, but a set of techniques whose goal is paradoxically to allow the unpredictable to happen. That's really beautifully formulated, um, David. Is that what you're talking about when you're, what you were saying just a minute ago? Does that resonate or is this a getting onto a different track of, uh, of your argument? It, no, that's exactly what I was talking about. Um, um, when, uh, when Dunn concludes this particular poem with the line, and death shall be no more, death thou shall die. This, of course, is um, um, beautifully written poetically, just even if just in terms of the sound uh, of this line. And uh, when I teach this poem, uh, um, I think it does have an impact uh, on, on most of its readers. Uh, and then, uh, and then people, readers, myself, in the course of uh, my first encounter with the poem, can get pretty disappointed when they read the Corinthians passage, because it turns out that, um, you know, apologies to Doug, this is pretty much Paul. Uh, he pretty <laughs> much just quotes Paul in the very, in possibly the best line of the poem. Right. He simply sort of cites uh, in his own, or at least paraphrases Paul. So, um, in that sense, and this goes back to what I was saying about how the entire book really is, uh, um, it comes out from the questions uh, that I had about Don's poem. And to some degree, an initial disappointment uh, with Don's poetry, and especially the Holy Sonnets, which always start out so powerfully. Don is especially striking in his first lines. And then they conclude quite often with uh, a line that is a close quotation or a paraphrasis of uh, of a of a doctrine of uh, of a biblical quotation, a biblical line like the Corinthians in this case. So um, so that's why I started thinking about what is it that the poems may be doing in order to prepare for that line. Okay. Maybe what if we think about this not just as oh the poet just like sort of. Uh, inserted that last line there because he had nothing better to say at that point, but rather that the work of the poem is to prepare the speaker, the reader, maybe the author uh, for the reception of that line, so to speak, to, to be able to think that line um, on their own. That's a very insightful. Uh, that, that's terrific. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. That really rings true. Um, which raises this question for me. How, um, how widely uh, was the idea of holy attention thought in Dunn's era, the early 17th century? Is, is Dunn doing something unique here, or is he one of a group of poets who are all attending to more or less the same thing? That's a really, um, that, that, that's a really interesting question. And again, once... It, it makes me want to rewrite the book or write two versions of the book um, <laughs> for, for, for the following reason. Um, on the one hand, uh, uh, the theological idea of a holy attention, of an undistracted attentiveness uh, was, um, I argue in the book, very much present in the period. Uh, this had uh, complex historical and theological reasons. Uh, it seems to me that the Reformation, uh, um, but even, well, the Reformation especially, um, gave rise to a kind of uh, uh, return to uh, um, ideas uh, from asceticism, uh, both critically, but also receptively. 
um, so many prominent figures in the period were thinking anew about um, ideas of, for instance, perfect prayer. Mm-hmm. And perfect prayer is all, uh, or at least I think very strongly related to this idea of a holy attention. And this was, uh, this included Catholic figures, Protestant figures from Ignatius of Loyola himself, uh, the author of the spiritual exercises, got in trouble for thinking about, uh, about uh, this tradition. Um, and, and, um, and on the Protestant side, uh, especially uh, in, uh, in the more uh, radical circles, uh, it too became a very power, uh, powerful idea and ideal. But um, um, what I was interested in this book was actually, again, not so much the theological idea, uh, but rather um, how the ideal of a holy attention remained operational in practice um, even for people who would not embrace it explicitly at all. And what I want to emphasize here is uh, Don actually would not have agreed with many of the statements of my book. Uh, he was not somebody who would have uh, uh, theologically necessarily um, embraced some of uh, the ideas associated with this tradition for a number of different reasons. I think partly because um, uh, because he was so invested in uh, in a in a kind of non-individualistic sense of uh, of 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 what religion, what devotion um, should entail, uh, and partly for reasons of character. I, I as I mentioned, I think he's a he's a very distracted distracted uh, author and, uh, and 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 character in general. So the issue for me wasn't whether Dunn or any other poets in the period embraced this idea, but whether or not uh, it influenced their poetry, whether or not it remained uh, uh, operational in their poetry. And in that sense, uh, Dunn is an extreme case, uh, but I would, I would argue that uh, virtually every poet, especially poets who work in uh, devotional poetry in the period, um, from Herbert to Vaughan uh, and beyond, obviously, uh, the English context, uh, you could give readings uh, of their poetry in terms of um, how they operate with uh, with this idea of attentiveness. Okay. Yeah. Do you find uh, that the idea persists in poetry into later periods? Um, you know, I, 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 or is it really the kind of thing that is for a host of reasons, uh, you know, cultural and, and historical and religious, and, you know, et cetera, uh, political, uh, is rooted in the 17th century with particular focus, or, or does it remain for maybe some of the same reasons or some different reasons uh, active into later historical periods? Or is that question too big? Um, well, it, it, it is probably, it would be too ambitious for me to, to give a yes okay. or no answer or, or really attempt uh, an answer that includes all poets uh, or, or, or at least a lot of poets in the later period. Uh, but it seems to me that... Uh, First of all, there is a very strong tradition that comes out from uh, the 17th century devotional uh, poets uh, who keep influencing poets. Obviously, uh, um, in the 20th century, um, this gets particularly uh, strong uh, because of uh, Eliot's embracing uh, of the metaphysical poets. Uh, but Coleridge was a great reader of Don. I think Coleridge is one of the best readers of Don, actually, of, of all the... Um, of all the sort of uh, um, poetic readers of uh, of Dunn. So, so first of all, there's direct influence. And I think insofar as there is direct influence, uh, this idea of attentiveness for sure um, is influential as well. Um, 
the second thing that I would say very quickly is that um, the association between this idea of attentiveness and religion may be particular to the metaphysical poets in the 17th century and the authors that they influence in later periods. Um, okay. But obviously, attentiveness as right. such. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I and and I would make a claim about how that I, the attentiveness in its everyday uh, workings is related um, to uh, the tradition that I'm talking about. Okay, good. So here's an example. I, you know, a couple of years ago, I was part of a symposium at, held at the University of Utah on the subject of attention, and the person that they used uh, to kind of to give kind of like the the, the thematic overview was a, is a quote from the 20th century mystic Simone Weil. Right, who's written some very compelling things about attention. Here, here is a, a passage from one of her essays. I'm curious how you think this relates to Dunn and how it differs from what Dunn is doing. Here's what she says. Attention consists of suspending our thought, leaving it detached, empty, and ready to be penetrated by the object. It means holding in our minds within reach of this thought, but on a lower level and not in contact with it, the diverse knowledge we've acquired, which we are forced to make use of. Our thought should be in relation to all particular and already formulated thoughts as a man on a mountain who, as he looks forward, sees also below him without actually looking at them a great many forests and plains. Above all, our thought should be empty, waiting, not seeking anything, but ready to receive in its naked truth the object that is to penetrate it. Thoughts on how that relates to Dunn or how it differs in some essential way? So this goes to the to the heart of what I was saying about uh, Dunn uh, being an interesting author for me in the context of holy attention, precisely because he would never embrace that idea explicitly. So Dunn would never write this passage. Uh, and in okay. fact, he would be uh, slightly scandalized by this passage, it seems <laughs> to me. Um, and yet, uh, what the quotation um, from Whale is, it it is a uh, a very explicit and direct expression of the ideal that I'm talking about. Uh, and in fact, Bale was of course familiar with, uh, with certain um, um, trends in Christian mysticism. Uh, and I think uh, it's, it's very, very, very clear from this quotation that that's what uh, inspires her thinking about attentiveness. So, so on the one hand, in terms of uh, the theological tradition, um, I think the whale quotation is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Um, on the other hand, uh, um, what makes uh, Don for me um, an interesting author in this context is precisely the fact that he would uh, theologically not embrace this and that uh, in the actual text, uh, he struggles with it. Don primarily is an author of distraction, I think. Uh, like cool. all of the poems, get distracted and it is only from the experience of distraction that some experience of attentiveness uh, can arise um, and this is why the poems are so interesting although this is not to say that this is not there in whale as well as far as i know for instance the headaches i'm i've yes. always been fascinated with the headaches in yeah. in whale and and i wonder if the headaches had something to do um with uh with both the thirst for attentiveness and perhaps even uh, as a kind of um um, way of coping. Um. Yeah, she talks about actually she she was a, a very uh, an avid lover of George Herbert's poetry, uh, and she would cite that to herself and recite it and recite it and and also take certain passages from the Bible, like the Lord's Prayer, and recite them as a as attention exercises to help 
alleviate some of the pain, at least distract her from, it, 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 attention and distraction belong together, right? So distract from the one so as to attend to the other, or rather attend to the one so as to attract from the other. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, story in her case about this. Um, I'm curious about, so Dunn, um, what in Dunn's poem here strikes you? I, I, I say here, this is my copy of the poem that you read. Uh, what in Dunn's uh, poem seems to be especially lending itself to distraction? What inside of the poem is it trying to overcome to get us to a place where we can't attend properly? Um, the paradoxical, perhaps paradoxical answer to that is that uh, it's precisely poetry and language very often that is both uh, the source of distraction and at the same time, a source of uh, some experience of attentiveness. So um, in this particular holy sonnet, but this is actually, I think, true of a number of holy sonnets. And I tried to read uh, a, a number of other holy sonnets as well. Um, they begin uh, very much in the mode of, uh, of Dunn's lyric poetry with uh, a hyperbolical and, in a sense, audacious uh, attack on, on death uh, and an address um, of death as a person. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful. For thou art not so. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, it's both poetic and extremely simple, in a sense. Right? You're not any one of those things. You're not powerful. Uh, you shouldn't be proud, and you're not even uh, terrifying. And then uh, what the speaker does is uh, it provides a set of arguments for why death shouldn't be any one of those things. Um, and then concludes at the end of the poem, you see, death no longer even exists. And actually, there is a turning away from a personified death, except in the last line, death sort of comes back, death thou shall die. Um, so there is almost like a resurrection of death happening at the end. Uh, yeah. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to show how this is a consistent, uh, if you will, technique in Dana to get into a kind of uh, enthused, lyrical, rhetorical, poetic uh, exercise, uh, only to realize uh, that something has not been uh, thought of. Uh, and that something, that thing from which you have gotten distracted is what comes back at the end of the poem here, literally in the figure of a resurrected death. Uh, and becomes uh, thereby the object of, of attention. Um, and that's the sort of paradoxical triumph in the poem, because that does become, again, the target of attention at the end. Uh, but is that uh, a defeat or a victory? For that's the great. That's, yeah, that's a great answer to my question. That's great, David. Um, you know, it, it, one thing you remark is that um, Dunn's uh, poems as attention exercises are, and I'm quoting here now from your book on page 33, they're aimed at allowing the speaker to think a religious doctrine with a certainty that is subjective and existential. In other words, they're meant to create a very specific kind of knowledge, namely faith. Um, what, uh, what, what does faith mean in this context of this poem? You know, this is actually um, um, not necessarily, um, I think, a new idea. Um, the novelty that I'm trying to argue for is uh, to connect this to um, the notion and the experience uh, of attentiveness. Uh, the idea that uh, that uh, there is uh, 
um, an experience that is subjective, uh, existential, if you will, uh, and that has to do with faith, uh, and that seems to be influential for Dunn's Holy Sonnets, uh, is uh, is pretty evident for for those who work on uh, Reformation theology and devotion. Um, and actually, this is present even in uh, in uh, in Catholicism and in the period and before. Um, and the idea here. Um, it's usually called application. The idea here is that uh, there is a religious doctrine um, that you as a community of believers accept. That's a kind of faith. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, the idea of the resurrection, you accept it. Um, but believing uh, that for, believing for instance, the idea that Christ has redeemed mankind does not necessarily mean that you personally believe to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. Uh, and what happens in a lot of the Holy Sonnets is uh, precisely the transition from, oh, I know that you have saved all of us, but have you saved me? Yeah. And of course, that's uh, logically speaking, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, if Christ has saved everybody, then, uh, then assumedly you're included in, in that everybody. But at an existential level, that's where uh, that's where the poems do a lot of the work of moving from the general to the particular. How to make faith um, sort of uh, how to adjust it to the person, how to apply it to the person, and that's why in this poem, for instance, uh, there is already a belief in death having been defeated at the beginning of the poem. But that's not enough. Something something more needs to be uh, fought for. Not something more needs to be achieved by the end of the poem. Uh, there is one particular holy sonnet. Uh, that is, that is especially striking in this sense because it ends with these two lines, uh, just to shed some more light on this idea of application. It ends with, this is a holy sonnet that ends with a prayer. Um, Here, on this lowly ground, teach me how to repent, for that's as good as if thou, thou'st, thou hadst sealed my pardon with thy blood. And what I have always found so striking about that line, especially the last line, teach me how to repent, says to God or, or Christ, because that's as good as, as if you had saved me. And of course, that's uh, my students, uh, some of whom are, are fairly familiar with, with the scriptures and with Christian uh, theology, were to scandalized by this because they were like, wait, is this poem saying that Christ has not saved mankind? And in a sense, it is saying, but of course, again, um, the transition here is from the general idea, um, Christ has saved everybody else, but have, have you saved me? And what can I do uh, in order to, to, to get that general thing applied to me? Right. I th this is what I was kind of saying at the very beginning of our discussion, right? That I'm, I'm really taken with um, insights like yours into how literature can make us think or feel in ways that might not otherwise be available to us, right? It can induce new ways of, of engaging the world, um, uh, to convert um, sort of a faith as a proposition of an idea, right, that Christ has redeemed humankind, to an experience of conversion. These are very different kinds of things. Um, uh, and it suggests that there's a kind of a, there's a, that faith is not knowing of a standard kind. It's almost an aesthetic quality to faith, a, a felt quality to faith that allows it to count as a knowledge of a different quality uh, than knowledge of uh, everyday uh, sort of material reality, uh, which I find uh, provocative. Is there a virtue, you think, to that kind of understanding? Um, 
uh, whether it be about faith or something else. Is there, is there, do you find yourself as a teacher or as a writer, as a thinker, uh, thinking widely and regularly about the things that literature can do in this way to generate effects? Is that what draws you to this kind of, I guess, were you more drawn to the fact that this poem generates certain effects as a literary phenomenon, or were you more taken with how it engages a specific tradition in a, in a new or different way? Does it make, if that question makes sense, what draws it? Is it more the aesthetic quality of what it's doing, or is it more the responsiveness in the tradition to what already preexisted it? Um, that's a big question. So, um, Impossibly big, perhaps. Impo a little bit impossibly big. Uh, let me try to, to think about it. Um, I will just think about it uh, as I speak. Um, so one thing that I found and, and, and still find actually even more than before, uh, so striking in Dunn's poetry is, um, is, uh, is how words in this poetry very often become things. Um, what I mean by that is, uh, for instance, Don has a very strange way of using deictic words. Uh, it, they, them, here, then. Uh, he loves those words. And he loves to use those words in a way that, uh, that uh, makes you very uncertain about uh, what is it exactly that they do? What is it that they refer to? So it, you can't very often read these poems quickly because they have these words thrown in. And you just have to stop and... And, and sort of uh, start searching in the syntax for what they could possibly refer to. Um, and one way of thinking about this is that uh, you have found out what the poem means when you have figured out what a deictic word refers to within the previous lines. Another way of thinking about it is that uh, um, deictic words allow Dunn to, to do this turning of, uh, of words that we usually take to mean things into things uh, that are almost like balls in a room that are just uh, moving in all kinds of different directions and give you this dizzying experience. Um, and in that sense, uh, um, I find it really fascinating how um, literary texts, uh, particularly poetry, but literary texts in general, uh, are able to um, take one of the most everyday experience that we have, which is uh, the use of language, um, and, uh, and transform it, uh, you know, some people call this defamiliarization, but my interest, what I'm trying to say is not so much that uh, it's a different meaning or that it creates a distance uh, from the everyday way of using words as meaningful, but specifically uh, the, the way in which uh, in poetry things are turned into things and therefore become part of a, 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 a sensual experience. Um, and so to try to to go back to your question about faith, uh, to try to do faith, if you will, mm -hmm. in poetry is a particularly exciting uh, exercise. Uh, and I think uh, this, I do believe that both Dunn and his readers were very clear on, on that, that this is what uh, was happening in the Holy Sonnets. Uh, um, because he shared these poems with friends and potential patrons all the time. And I think that was uh, both to show off his poetic skills, as he very often did, uh, but also to share um, um, this experience and the, and the techniques of, uh, of achieving this experience of, uh, of, of thinking about uh, things that can be very abstract um, and making them uh, sort of sensually available to, to himself and readers. Nice. Uh, you, know, you, you really bring that out um, beautifully uh, over the length of the book. 
uh, here, Death Be Not Proud. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. I'm wondering when you find yourself in front of a classroom of undergraduates, uh, you know, in a poetry seminar, uh, is that what you try to communicate about why poetry is valuable or matters? Or is it a different kind of case you make? Or do you assume that if they are there, they must already love it? I mean, do, you, do you find you need to make the case? If you do, what case do you make? Oh, wow. Um, a couple of things. Uh, since I am teaching done right now, I have a lot to say about this, but um, let me just try to um, focus on two. One is, um, as you said, I, I'm, I don't have to sell Don's poetry in most of the cases. Uh, my experience has been that uh, the best way of selling Don's poetry is just read a poem. Um, and, uh, and most students, uh, most people um, who encounter Don's poetry, um, I think um, got hooked pretty quickly, um, at least, at the very least, intrigued. Um, by this poetry. So, so I don't really have to make a, a strong pitch there. Um, the question of once you're in the process of reading, once you're, for instance, in the middle of a, of a difficult semester, like the semester right now, um, how do you defend, uh, um, and especially an entire course and done? Um, one really great experience that I recently had with my, with my students was uh, that uh, um, I think people um, are moved by Don's poetry. This is a uh, poetry that very often is uh, is so tender um, um, that uh, and 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 just moving uh, that it really has that kind of impact on people. Um, but I think very often Don's poetry is read by sort of modern post-romantic standards. Um, and so what I, one thing that I have been doing in my class right now is uh, I repeatedly showed how poems that, um, that they uh, felt, that they, that they found personally moving uh, were actually written uh, um, to, you know, gain patronage or for whatever purposes that uh, I think in the 21st century, we do not associate uh, with, uh, with those moving things. Uh, and at a certain point, one student of mine said uh, I have developed trust issues with them. And to me, that was actually a, a somewhat rewarding experience because I felt like, okay, it took a couple of weeks, uh, but finally we are at a point where we can start talking about uh, what makes this poetry actually interesting in what ways. It is actually a genuine challenge, I think, uh, to the modern reader to understand that Dunn can be simultaneously um, completely serious about religion, about love. And at the same time, you know, right, um, write a, an, a, an outrageously long poem uh, about the death of a young woman. I'm talking, of course, about uh, the famous uh, uh, first anniversary, the anatomy of the world. Um, write a poem uh, to uh, commemorate the, the, a young woman um, on the occasion of, a, of the death of a young woman he'd never met. Like this idea for my students was just absolutely scandalizing. Uh, and it was a really interesting exercise to try to see how you could read the poem and, and take it at both of those levels or at all of those levels. That really captures, I think, the art of the English professor. You know, if you can, if you can present something that is um, moving and, and, and illustrate it in a way that really elicits uh, these feelings in, 
readers and students, you know, um, on the one hand, and then show that the thing may be operating at a wholly different level than one may at first imagine. There's a, there's an art to that. Uh, and that, that art is captured here so well. Uh, we have like about a minute left is all David, um, your current work, this is four years old on this book. Is your current work along the same direction or is it, is it wholly different material? Um, it's fairly different, but uh, but it has a connection to the book. Um, you know, I'm I'm not actually speaking of English, speaking of uh, the art of uh, of teaching literature. I don't have a background in English literature. I was uh, trained originally as uh, in a philosophy department, then in the comparative literature department. I got interested in uh, certain concepts, then in dance poetry, and that landed me uh, thankfully in an English department. Uh, and I've been obviously very happy to be where I am at UC Berkeley. But at the same time, uh, it's a foreign environment to me. And I did not know when I wrote this book how important Don was for uh, English as a discipline, English uh, as a tradition. So what I have been um, working on in, uh, in recent uh, months and years uh, even is, uh, is a, is a kind of understanding of the English department. Uh, I'm, I'm really fascinated with uh, not so much the discipline. It seems to me that a lot of the current conversations focus on, uh, on discipline. I have doubts about whether or not English is a discipline in the first place. Um, uh, but I'm very interested in the department as an institutional structure in its relationship to both the university and to uh, the public world, if you will. Um, what is the function of the English department? Uh, historically and uh, and today. That's what I'm working on. The connection a little bit is uh, between Dunn and English, uh, but the current work does not focus on Dunn or even on poetry. That's great. I, years ago, a colleague of mine who's actually been a guest on the podcast, Karen's Craig, pointed out that it was Herbert Grierson's edition of Dunn at the University of Aberdeen in the early 20th century. It ends up being a very important way to articulate the importance of uh, done to uh, further English study. It became important to T.S. Eliot. Anyway, I'm making some threads here, connections that are things I've known about. And draw, he drew out actually how Robert Burns had drawn upon Dunn's work, and Burns was so important to Scottish literature into the 20th century and beyond. Anyway, this has been a fascinating conversation, David. Your, your work is just terrific. And um, thank you for taking him to talk to us. This book is great. And uh, when your next book comes out, we'll get you back on to talk about that. <laughs> I really look forward to that, especially to completing that first book, uh, to the, that second book, and uh, but also to the opportunity of being being back here. And thank you so much. That was really, really rich conversation. Thank you, David. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the BYU Humanities Center podcast. Think clearly, act well, appreciate life. This podcast is sponsored by the Humanities Center and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University and is produced and edited by Brooke Brown and Sam Jacob. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by the Soli Chamber Orchestra and Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. I'm Matthew Wickman, founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and host of this podcast. If you're interested in other episodes of this podcast or want to know more about the BYU Humanities Center, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.